the Rugby Pathway of Fame, a tour around the birthplace of rugby football. This tour has been sponsored by Rugby Borough Council and the Town Centre Company. To accompany us on the tour, a man who knows a thing or two about rugby, Les Cusworth, former England fly half and England coach and director of rugby for Argentina. He's also spent some time as managing director of rugby school enterprises, looking after the business side of rugby school. The fascination about the school here is obviously one of the major things is the history. Uh, when William Obelis picked up the soccer ball and ran with it on the close, which is still there even today, in 1823, and where Bellis was a, a student in schoolhouse, which again is still a, bo- a boys' boarding house, and to me the history of the sport is, is quite incredible. And, you know, the game has moved on so much from those times. To see, the, to see rugby, rugby school and the history of rugby continue and develop into the major sport there is now is quite incredible. The walk starts from the Rugby Visitor Centre in Rugby Art Gallery and Museum, that's on Little Elborough Street, and it's here that you can pick up your copy of the booklet containing the map and further information for the walk and any other leaflets you might require. Also, there are MP3 players with a copy of this audio on it. I'm Jane Markham. Also with us is Blue Badge Guide, Roger Bailey. We're going to actually be following uh, links to the rugby football game. Uh, nearly 50 of them, in actual fact. It's a fantastic walk. Uh, we're going to have a, and hopefully it will be a beautiful day for you, but we're going to have a good walk around rugby, learn about its history and its connection to that famous game. Well, the walk splits nicely into two parts, and there are lots of places to stop for coffee, lunch, or just sit and watch the world go by. So check your MP3 player over, locate the pause button. You'll need that, particularly when you're crossing the roads. There are pedestrian uh, traffic lights, and you need to use them where possible. If not... Please remember some of the roads in rugby are extremely busy. Always look to the left and look to the right. Be aware of traffic around you. We don't want to lead you along the route, do we? <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> it, it starts at the visitor centre, and uh, the very first uh, pathway of fame plaque is, is right on the, uh, on the entrance. It's right outside before you reach the steps, and of course it's the person that started it all, William Webb Ellis, who ran with that first ball in the 1820s. And without him, there would be no rugby football and no uh, famous game that's known throughout the world. Where do we move on to now? Where's, where we is the next We move plan? down to Wolf Street. There are actual arrows on the floor which are there to guide you. So watch the arrows and don't bump into anyone when you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so really, it's just across the, just across the car park to uh, Wool Street and uh, plaque number two. Number two is of a very famous person called Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny's a complete fly half, uh, the ultimate professional. He's become a household name uh, for the final drop goal, uh, the World Cup final uh, against Australia, and a moment never to be forgotten. And Johnny Wilkinson, to me, is a very special fly half and a very special person and player. What's good about this pathway is it's not just about history, it's not just about people in the past, it's about people in the present, people who are known today, who have been seen on television. Mm. And I think it brings it alive. Mm. And I notice you mentioned the arrows. Yes. I can see the arrows. They're telling us to walk up Wall Street. Where, where are we heading for? We're actually heading towards Rugby School. The arrows are on each of the plaques, but there are additional arrows in the floor whenever you come across a crossroads. So we'll be watching out for those, but please remember to look up as well as look down. Yes, let's go. Oh, and here is a... A case in point, just at the end of Wall Street. They would be easy to miss if you didn't know what you were looking out for, these arrows. That's very true, and they are on the floor, and actually this one is pointing to go past Duke's jetty. So we need to keep your eyes on the floor when you've gone past one of the pathways of fame plaques. Uh, There's a good number of them on the path, so keep your eyes open. 
So we've walked up Duke's Jetty, which is a wonderful name for a street, to uh, find plaque number two. But hang on, by my reckoning, this should be plaque number three. What's going on? Technically, it is plaque number three, but we added one in between one and two. Johnny Wilkinson, we had to. The guy had done such an amazing job winning that game. Um, number two is quite important because it's the first time we've actually got the rules formalised. The rules had evolved over a period of a number of years. And this is the first time we've formalised the first set of rules. Now, this is the start of a, an actually controlled sort of game. And this is 1845, so it's quite a long time after uh, Webb Ellis. It's a good, uh, just over 20 years after he picked up that ball and ran across the field. First rule, 1845, and a little arrow to the right. It's a bit early in the walk to stop for coffee, but we just walked past some lovely-looking coffee shops in this street. And at the end, I suppose this must be rugby school ahead of us. It is rugby school, actually. It's, it just hits you as you walk to the top of High Street. Uh, at the very top, I noticed that there, there is a flag flying. Does that have a significance? It is associated with the school of rugby. You can see the coat of arms over the doorway just in front of you, which is the same. Whilst we hit the end of High Street, we need to take a left turn and you will see the arrow on the floor to direct you to the pedestrian crossing. And that's where we're heading next. Uh, It's quite a busy road up here, um, past the school, uh, but we come across ah, a 2A, another another familiar recent rugby star. Famous Martin Johnson. Leicester Tiger. When I retired in 1990, Martin was uh, playing as a youngster in New Zealand and then came back and forged his career with uh, Leicester England and the Lions. And again, a, a leader of men. Obviously, what he's, uh, what he's done in the, in the past few years has been quite fantastic. Captain England during that fantastic victory. And again, all, what you can say about Martin is a winner in whatever he does and, uh, let's say, a very special player in, uh, in rugby history. To plaque three. But he's directly opposite the uh, pedestrian crossing when you cross it, so watch out for it. William Totty Cartmail, the founder of the Barbarians. Now, Les, you've had a, a long association with the Barbarians, I think. Yeah, I played many years for the Barbarians. I was very lucky. I played in the uh, winning Hong Kong Sevens in Hong Kong for the Barbarians in 1981, and I've had the privilege of playing for them and captaining them on, on a number of occasions. Willie Totty uh, Carpmail, the founding father of the Barbarians, back end of the 19th century. And the Barbarians are obviously the only rugby club without a home ground. Um, and that became about because of Totty's idea to start an invitation, to, invitation side uh, to tour at holiday times. And um, People obviously enjoy playing for the Barbarians. Well, they do, and uh, obviously with the advent of professionalism in 1995 with rugby, uh, there are Barbarians teams all around the world, New Zealand Barbarians, Canadian Barbarians even the Argentine Barbarians. So, you know, a thing of that nature. Uh, the Barbarians' uh, unique uh, twist on the game and playing rugby for the right reasons, for enjoyment, pleasure and meeting people. It's a very fine building in front of us, uh, actually on the corner. What's, what's this? Well, that imposing building is the Temple Speech Room, opened by King Edward VII in 1909 and named after Frederick Temple, a rather famous headmaster, who later became the Archbishop of Canterbury. As well as Speech Day, this building plays host to concerts, plays and other large functions for the school. And inside, it's just beautiful. If you get a chance to go inside, you must go inside. It doesn't look as though it's open to the public every day or anything like that. No, but you can actually go in on uh, one of the tours, if you do, with the rugby school tours. I'm not sure if you can go in on all the tours, but it, it has been part of the tours in the past. 
So from here we continue up towards the temple speech room to plaque number four, Bill McLagan. Bill McLagan, Les. McLagan played 25 times uh, for Scotland from the late 1870s to 90s. He was tall and, and wore a, a fashionable wax moustache. I think in the physical state of rugby now, they'd, uh, that'd be a, a fair target to, uh, to make a tackle from. But he was a stockbroker, moved to London, and then he was uh, the major force behind setting up uh, London Scottish uh, Rugby Union Football Club. And London Scottish I had the privilege of playing against them many times for Leicester and London Scottish became synonymous with fantastic attacking rugby right throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. So, uh, as I say, Bill McLagan uh, contributed an awful lot to the development of rugby football. And then it's a right into Barbie Road. Well, this is a bit quieter, and our first glimpse of, uh, of a rugby field. Uh, not just any rugby field, because we're looking at where it all started all those years ago. Uh, what's important about this, it's also, as a plaque, number five, it represents the first international game. This was between Scotland and England. We're dating it in 1871, so very much again a pioneer part of rugby football. And what's also important is the notice board, the history board in front of us. And I recommend you read this, because it talks to you about the early game points out where the, that famous uh, pick up the ball and run actually happened. Oh, and a wonderful, uh, a wonderful picture on this, uh, this uh, notice board too of uh, at rugby in the 1870s. It looked a pretty uh, fearsome game. What is also here is a copy of the plaque that actually commemorates our friend William Webb Ellis actually picking up that ball and running across the field. And the actual plaque itself is beyond the fence. So if you want to look at that, go through the gates and bear off to the right-hand side and you'll see that plaque itself and also you'll see the list of people associated with rugby rugby school you think of Arthur Ransom Swallows and Amazons and David Croft who wrote Dad's Army and of course Hello Hello now it's slightly further to our next plaque I think I think it's worth bearing in mind because we're going around the outskirts of the sunny leafy part of rugby there is a bigger gap between the, the floor plaques so please bear that in mind and enjoy the walk well it's beautiful looking looking at the uh, the trees and the and those wonderful goalposts. And too. of course, looking at the field where it all started. So, plaque number six, we've arrived at plaque number six. And on the whole, apart from the sort of the modern day rugby players, it, the, the plaque seemed to be following some sort of historical um, order. Yes, there is. It's, it's, it's trying to actually go for the history of rugby football step by step. And to be honest, there's a lot of steps. It took a lot to evolve it into the game we understand today. It wasn't an easy process. The one we're standing at, number six, is really talking about the foundation of the International Rugby Football Board in the late Victorian era. And that's quite an important step. And England didn't want to play a part in that initially, but it did join within a very quick uh, amount of time. It tells us to cross the road. Yes. Please remember the cross with care. It's a fairly busy road. You need to watch out for the traffic to the right and to the left, and there are parked cars here as well, so bear that in mind when you're looking. OK. Well, we moved under a beautiful old beech tree on the other side of the road. And plaque number seven. And plaque number seven is very important. It's all about the foundation of Rugby League in 1895, another important step in the evolution of the rugby football game. 
And that was the dispute over whether players should be paid to play, with the Northern clubs creating rugby league and becoming the professional side of the game and, and rugby union remaining staunchly amateur. It's off up the road and a left turn into Halton Crescent. And Halton Crescent is absolutely charming, isn't it? The beautiful old brick buildings and, and it looks as though we're coming up to a, a garden at the end or a, a little parkway. It, it's really lovely. We've got a blackbird singing, and some of these buildings look very similar to the school buildings. Are these, are these related to the school? Yes, some of them are. They're actually part of the boarding facilities for the school. And we've reached plaque number eight, and there's an extra guide just come to uh, have a little word with us. <laughs> it's a beautiful ginger cat. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I'm going to risk tickling his tummy. He looks as though he's a bit of a tiger, that one. <laughs> I don't think he's actually going to talk, so I think you're going to have to tell us about the black yourself. (laughs) Dave Gallagher is of New Zealand. Dave emigrated to New Zealand uh, from Ireland, uh, apparently in 1878, uh, when he was five, and uh, fought in the South African Wars. So although he was a talented player, he didn't get his first cap until he was 30 years old, and he played in his first international match uh, between New Zealand and Australia, which they won incidentally and uh, unfortunately died in the First World War, fighting in Flanders in 1917. No arrow to tell me where to go, Roger, but you've just pointed one out to me. Um, Left, I assume. Yes, it is left. We actually uh, bear off left and follow and head towards the next plaque, which you should see very shortly. Plaque number nine. Ronald Poulton Palmer was obviously in Oxford Blue with that name and um, in both rugby and hockey in 1909, 10 and 11. He played 17 times uh, for England and captained the side uh, for the last Five Nations series before the First World War. And he was described as a hypnotic runner, and one opponent said, how can you stop him when his head goes one way, his arms another, and his legs go straight on? Again, uh, sounds like Rory Underwood of me some years ago. Now the only other side, you'll see Duke's Oval in the middle of Horton Crescent. Uh, the thing that I rather... <laughs> rather disdainfully called a garden or something. It's not quite a garden. It's a little bit more than a garden. I reckon if you could see it from the air, it would be a perfect oval, which probably has some links, really, doesn't it? I think it could easily be a rugby football. It's actually what's called the Duke's Oval, named after a former director of music at the school, and this is used by boys and girls for informal games only. It's not big enough for a rugby pitch and it's surrounded by those glorious lime trees. So, <laughs> so where are we off to now? The arrows go We're in this direction. Another left turn. Well, we're getting down to the end of Horton Crescent now and approaching another busy road. And uh, now, what are we, number 10? Yes, a certain Mr. McPherson. Like uh, Ronald Poulton Palmer, he was also in Oxford Blue in three consecutive years, uh, although a few years after him. And whilst he was still at university, he captained Scotland to their first Grand Slam in 1925. This is almost the eastern bound of rugby school's buildings. So we're almost coming away from rugby school as we step and go round the corner. OK, now we take a left by the look of things. We certainly do. So we've come to uh, number 11 quite quickly, actually. It's only about uh, 30 yards round the corner, and uh, we go to the United States for this one. Well, Colby Slater, I guess, he, um, came from America. He was nicknamed Babe. And again, is this a forefront to what we're going to see in the next 30 years with the advent of, of professional rugby in the world? 
and I think the United States is a real major powerhouse that will be unearthed in the next 30 years. And I know the International Rugby Board now are working hard currently uh, to get the United States really competitive and to be a major force in the next 20 years. And he served with the U.S. Army a Medical Corps in France during the First World War, and he won Olympic gold medals in rugby for 1920 and 24. And at the 24 Paris Olympics, the U.S. rugby team beat the French team to win the gold. And the disappointed French friends rioted in the stands. And since that time, rugby has not been an Olympic event. And hopefully they'll change that in the uh, not-too-distant future. While we're standing here, it's worth bearing in mind we need to cross the road through the um, little island ahead of us. And there's another plaque on the other side of the road. But it's very busy. Yes, <laughs> you can hear it tr- thundering down behind us. Uh, let's, uh, let's pause the old, uh, the old recording and uh, cross the road. Like number 12. Uh, well, Wave Awake for Father is said to have held his baby son upright so that he could dribble a ball before he could even walk. Again, we could say that of many uh, international rugby players. And it must have worked because he went on to captain England 13 times and in the 31 international matches he played for his country uh, between 1920 and 1926 he was uh, at the foremost performance of, for English rugby. going to walk down Hillmorton Road You need to notice the four yellow brick houses, numbered 9 to 15, the last yellow brick houses to be built in rugby. Darnie Craven, number 13. I was lucky enough to meet uh, Darnie Craven uh, when I went to South Africa in the late 80s, early 90s. And Darnie was indeed a, a true gentleman of rugby football. He had a successful international career with the Springboks in South Africa and he worked tirelessly to rid the sport of racial barriers and to bring South African rugby back onto the world stage. He was president of South African Rugby Football Board for 34 years and happily lived long enough to see it happen. And as you know, he, he died in 1993 and was well known for taking his friends and foes down to Stellenbosch to taste a glass of wine with him in Cape Town. Well, I've just looked up from this plaque to find that we're in front of rather an important house, Roger. Yes, number five, the house where the poet Rupert Brooke was born a very important son of rugby. His father was a teacher at rugby school. Rupert Brooke is famous for the lines, If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Mm. And sadly, he died in 1915 from an infected mosquito bite on his way to the Battle of Gallipoli. And he's buried on the Greek island of Skyros. OK, let's move on. Uh, we're off to number 14. So here we are at plaque number 14, and uh, this, is, this is an Irish representative, uh, Jack Kyle. Well, a lot of my Irish friends will say again, Jackie Kyle uh, was a, a fly half of great repute, and there have been very uh, fewer better players than Jackie, and he won a, a record 46 caps for Ireland during one of the greatest periods of their rugby history in the Grand Slam and Triple Crown winning sides of 48 and 49, uh, plus the Five Nations Championship as it was then in 1951. And after his rugby career, he went to Zambia, where he worked as a surgeon until his retirement in 1998. A great rugby footballer, uh, really quick, of slight of hand and feet, and what modern rugby fly half should model themselves on. On the other side of the road, we, we've got a, a more modern rugby school building, I think. Yes, the Dean House. It says so on the left-hand pillar. But on the right-hand side, it tells you what it used to be. The old school sanatorium. Successor to the old sound on the Horton Crescent. So we're facing, well, we've just 
arrived just before Little Church Street and uh, plaque number 15. Uh, Jean Pratt, 51 caps for France in the 10 years between 1945 and 1955. He was born in Lourdes and was known as one of the magicians of the game of rugby football in the 50s. And this was uh, reflected in his nickname, L'Extraordinaire. His brother Maurice also played for France uh, for 31 times and was of a similar disposition. It's amazing how many brothers did play international. It is, indeed. The Underwoods, yeah, etc, etc. Turning right into Little Church Street, we'll uh, continue on our way. I nearly didn't see number 16 because he's in the shade of this uh, this wall by this, this car park here. And in fact, I have to say, I was looking at the Merchant's Inn, which is rather an attractive, half-timbered looking inn ahead of us. But um, I'm glad you pointed it out to me. Number 16, Nick Shahady from Australia. Again, uh, I've also had the privilege of meeting Nick Shahady at the Hong Kong Sevens and other places around the rugby world. And he's, obviously he's now his proper title is Sir Nicholas Shahady because he was knighted for his services to rugby. He played in 30 tests for Australia between 47 and 1958 and was the first overseas player to play for the Barbarians against his own touring side in 1958. Later in, in life, he became president of the Australian Rugby Union and was twice Lord Mayor of Sydney and indeed one of the gentlemen of rugby football. Yeah, we've come, around, come down past, past the Merchants Inn... <laughs> Past the back entrance of M&S, so this is the this is the working part of rugby, isn't it? And we're heading up towards a rather attractive church. Some of these plaques can be quite difficult to locate. Um, we just have to ask a gentleman to move his car to see number seventeen. So number seventeen, I would hate you to have missed it. Brian Bevan from Australia. When I was a youngster, Brian Bevan was known as a big, strong, hard-running rugby league winger. And uh, he said he was a frail, gaunt ex-Australian serviceman when he turned up for a trial at Warrington in 1945. And he'd already been, he'd already been turned down by Leeds and Hunslet Rugby League clubs. Warrington took him on and he stayed 16 years, scoring 796 tries for them. Uh, there is even a statue to him in Warrington and he died in 1991. So this, this frail appearance was total rubbish then? <laughs> I think he must have been eating something in Warrington because uh, my knowledge of Brian Bevan was that uh, big, strong, physical, fearsome runner uh, that uh, he didn't enjoy tackling. What we've got here as well, we've, we can see a church from here. It's right ahead of you. And it's the West Tower St Andrew's Church, thought to be the oldest structure in rugby, dating back to the 14th century. Of course, in the height for summer, there may be a few leaves on the trees, so please bear that in mind. Yeah, so you get a better view of it in the winter, but I can see what you mean. Some of the, the stonework in the top of the tower is, looks new and, and, and restored, but that, that stonework around the, uh, around the clock there is, is very ancient, isn't it? Yeah, it goes back a long way. As do most churches in this country, it's a typical English church. And before we, before we leave the church, we're, we're underneath the tower now for uh, plaque number 18. Yes, this is Billy Boston, a great Briton. Well, again, Billy Boston, a great, a great, great name in, in what latterly became uh, Rugby League. And he was born in Cardiff's Tiger Bay and became the first non-white player to be selected on tour for Great Britain. He scored 100 Rugby League tries in just 68 matches, which was a record. And again, uh, you'll always remember Eddie Waring, one of the Rugby League commentators of all time, always at the end of his tongue was the name Billy Boston and uh, indeed one of the greats of rugby and rugby league. So let's move on and we go past this 
a wonderful old door on the church here. This is... The west side of the church, and these are the main doors, beautiful wooden doors, and also you'll notice on the left-hand side some of the gravestones. This has all been revamped. They want to preserve some of the history of the church, and this is what they've done. They've actually placed them on the walls. Fantastic. We're leaving the uh, quiet peacefulness of the, of the church, coming down onto, well, modern-day rugby. And we're going to turn right into Church Street very shortly, but before we do that... We have a quick look at Cliff Morgan. Well, not, <laughs> not the real Cliff Morgan, the plaque dedicated to him. Cliff Morgan, again, a fantastic Welsh halfback. Uh, remembered by many as a great rugby radio and television commentator um, with his lilting Ronda Valley accent. And this was preceded by a brilliant career at Flyoff, playing for Wales 29 times between 1951 and 1958. Again, as rugby has uh, produced over the years, a true gentleman of sport and a true gentleman of rugby union. So this is almost halfway through the plaques, which would seem quite a good point to uh, have a break or indeed perhaps come back another day. It's a a natural break here, I think. I think it's a great break here, and actually it's an opportunity to go and have a drink and something to eat. There's a lot of local uh, pubs nearby and coffee shops and things like that. It's a good location, so we should take advantage of it. This tour has been sponsored by Rugby Borough Council and the Town Centre Company.